Well, it is Father's Day, and I'm excited to, uh, to share with you on Father's Day. Um, one of the things that I love about being a dad is that I get to tell dad jokes. And, you know, it's almost like an expectation. You have to tell dad jokes every now and then. And the goal, you have to understand this, because if you're not a dad, you won't know. But the goal of a dad joke is not so much humor or laughter. The goal of a dad joke is to get your family, your boys, maybe your wife, to roll their eyes so hard you can hear it. That's a good dad joke. So I had a couple dad jokes that I wanted to share with you today just to get us started. Um, And so the first one, and these are some of my favorites right now. The first one, did you know that the first French fries weren't actually cooked in France? No, they were cooked in Greece. Get it? Grease, like oil. And that's the other thing about a dad joke. You have to explain it even after they've gotten it. That's a critical, critical component of a dad joke. The second one, what do you call someone who saw a robbery at an Apple store? An eyewitness. Get it? Apple store, not the fruit, the products, like the iPhones, iPads. Okay. Now you're coming along. Now you're coming along. Last one, and I promise I'll stop. Why did the Clydesdale... Give the toy pony a glass of water. Because he was a little horse. Get it? Get it? He was a little horse, but he was also horse. It's a play on the word horse. All right, so um, that's just a little levity to get us, uh, get us all on the same page. We're talking about unity today, and one thing that we were all united in right there was we were laughing. We were experiencing joy together, and laughter is one of these strange phenomenons that human beings get to participate in, and I think that God must laugh because we were created in his image, and we're the only creatures on earth that laugh, and it's this, it's this spontaneous outburst of joy that we got to experience together just now. We're going to be continuing our series titled a United, or this message titled a United Families of United Families, a United Family of United Families, as we put flesh on this vision that we have here at Linwood to be a family of families. What kind of family do we want to be? And one of the things we want to be is united. So we celebrate fathers today. We celebrate dads. We celebrate you men who are in the thick of it right now, and you've got little ones running to greet you when you walk through the door. We celebrate you who maybe have teenagers that don't necessarily act like they want anything to do with you, but they're watching you. They're listening to you. They want to know if you see them. We're with you. We're with you parents who are saying goodbye and sending kids off to college. We're with you who are grandparenting and grandfathering. And we're with you who are just playing a role in a young person's life as a male mentor or speaking truth into their life in some way or another. And we recognize that there's a broad spectrum of dads and there are also a broad spectrum of emotions that follow on a day like Father's Day. And where we have much to celebrate for the men that are among us, we also understand and we see those who are struggling on Father's Day. And we see that, and we want you to know you're not alone. You're never alone. And you're not alone in feeling alone. So as we talk about being a united family of united families today, I picked this message. I wanted to cover this topic in this series, and I put it on Father's Day intentionally because there is something very deep in the heart of a man that seeks unity, that seeks unity. I was listening to uh, the, uh, the audiobook version of of Wild at Heart. It's a kind of a classic men's ministry book. And I was finally listening to the whole thing all the way through. And there was a part in there that I had never considered. And he was talking about man's thirst for unity. And it was after I had decided to put this message on this day. But he, he said, do you realize that there was a point in Genesis chapter 3 where Eve was fallen and Adam was not yet fallen? 
And he speculated that it was man's thirst for unity with his wife that caused him maybe to take the fruit. That he couldn't stand there to be this fallenness for his wife that he wouldn't be in that as well. And, of course, the critical error is it caused him to lose his oneness with God, but he maintained the unity with his wife. And I had never considered that before, and I know the text doesn't specifically say that, but it, it, to me it represented. And if you look at places where men are, are the vast majority, in the military and, in, and sometimes in uh, police force, law enforcement, those types of things, there's, there's a, a thirst and a quest for unity. Among the men, and, and it's a beautiful thing, and we can learn a lot from that. So that's what we're doing today as we continue this series. And uh, I want to just pause, and, and uh, I know she's left now, but Amanda and her team on VBS, what a great example of unity. As people from all ages, we had volunteers that were as young as 10 or 11, all the way up, and I'm not even going to guess how old some of our volunteers were, that's not the point, but multiple generations coming together with one purpose— to, to put on a phenomenal VBS, Vacation Bible School, for, for the 100 or so kids that God sent our way. And it was awesome to see all those purple shirts serving together and all the work that went in on the front end of that and all the work that went in on the back end of that and all the work that went into doing that. If you played a part in that, thank you. That was a great example of unity. Another one is uh, I was so blessed last week at the end of Zach's message um, when I saw dozens and dozens of Linwood families coming forward and picking up an Acts of Humility journal. If you missed this and you didn't get one, we have them out in the lobby. Um, but this was just a, an option that you had as a response to the message last week to spend seven days in a journal learning about humility, thinking about humility, praying about humility. And I enjoy going through that. I did it every day. Uh, I missed one day and had to do two days one day, but uh, that's the way it goes sometimes. And, and I thought as I did it, I was aware that, that there were dozens of families at Linwood that were doing this together, that we were one in our thoughts and we were one in our prayers. And uh, I wanted to you know, encourage you in that. If you started that and you've spent the last seven days spending time with a God, learning about humility and writing about it, don't stop. Keep engaging his word every day. Keep writing about it. Keep praying. Keep starting your day or ending your day with those times because God is in those moments and he longs for us to grow together with him. So our scripture today, as we look into what unity is, we're going to look at this three different angles. We're going to talk about unity, what it is, what it is not, and what it must include. That'll sort of build a framework for us today as we move through this. We're going to use this scripture, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, as more of a launch pad. So I won't necessarily teach through every word of it or something like that, but we'll use this as a launch pad as it because it really holds up the value of unity and helps us to see what unity is very clearly. It's Ephesians, 1, or Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. It's on page 1821 if you need to grab one of the pew Bibles in the chair in front of you. And uh, I'm going to read this uh, to us, and then we'll talk about it um, and talk about what it says about unity. So this is Paul writing to a church that he had planted in a town called Ephesus. That's why we call it Ephesians. One thing that's unique about Ephesus and the church there is that Paul was actually in that church for several years. Many of his churches, he was there for a couple of weeks and got, you know, spread the gospel and got some converts and put some people in leadership and then he moved on. But Ephesus is one where Paul stayed for some time and he was able to visit multiple times. And the letter that he writes to the church at Ephesus, we know from from 
history was one of the most widely circulated letters of all the New Testament. And so more churches heard this and, and heard this content and this information. And it's one of the broadest or most general letters as well. It doesn't necessarily focus just on specific issues at that church. Um, it speaks to the broader church. So it speaks to us today. And he says this right at the midpoint of this letter in chapter 4. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you, all of you. It's a plural you. So in, in the South they say, I urge y'all. I urge all of you collectively to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is one of the great, great passages on unity in all of Scripture. And it, I love the way it talks. We serve one God. We all together, we serve one God. There's one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one Lord and Father of us all. Here on Father's Day, we all have a common heavenly Father. When we come into relationship with Him, we share these things in common and we are unified in them. So as I said, we're going to talk about unity, what it is, what it is not, and what it must include. First, what is unity? We see the word unity in verse 3, and we see that it's talking about maintaining unity with the Spirit through the bond of peace. And so unity, a simple definition, unity is literally oneness. It's oneness with God, and it's oneness with each other. And so when you think of the cross, the emblem of Christianity, where there's a vertical axis on that. That's our oneness with God, our relationship with Him, and there's a horizontal axis. That could be our oneness with each other. And the unity that delights God the most is when we're one with Him, we're maintaining unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, through the bond of peace, the peace that we care carry with each other. So there's this element of the God-produced unity among believers, that that is biblical unity. And it's the harmony that comes from sharing likeness of nature with the Lord. There's a harmony that comes. How blessed it is when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity. Psalm 133 says, this is not a new concept. That there is something beautiful and there is something pure and there is something that the world takes notice of when we dwell together in unity with each other and with God. So that Greek word, henotes, becomes sort of a word picture and it's talking about the harmony that we have together. And so when we translate the word unity in verse 3, it's really henotes, and it's saying maintain unity with the Spirit. Because here's the deal. It doesn't matter how far apart we might be on any spectrum. If you're one with the Spirit and I'm one with the Spirit, then we're one together. You see that? Sometimes I'll use this in marriage counseling when there's a couple that they really love each other, and they're, they're just so focused on each other that they're almost smothering each other. And I'll say, you know what you might need to do? You might need to split uh, this counseling up a little bit, not split each other up, split this counseling up. I'll meet with the husband. I'll meet with the wife. I'll say, if you make it your goal to get as close to God as you possibly can, and I'll say to the wife, if you make it your goal to get as close to God as you possibly can, then it doesn't matter how far apart you are right now. You'll be getting closer to each other as you each get closer to God. And that's, I believe, a, a picture of what, what Paul is saying here, that as we maintain unity, you individually, me individually, us corporately, maintain unity with the Spirit, stay in step with Him, then we'll find ourselves at one with each other as well. 
So I want to give you a little bit of an overview of this idea of unity as oneness, as oneness throughout Scripture. You don't need to try to race through your Bible and find all these passages. They're going to be on a screen. If you want to jot them down and go back and do a little bit of study, you can. But we see this idea of unity from the very beginning. The first words that God speaks uh, are, are words that are spoken as a, as a collective entity, not let I, let me make God make man in my image. God says in Genesis 1.26, let us make mankind in our image. This is where we get this idea of the Trinity clear back in the first pages of Scripture that God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit dwelling together in perfect love and in perfect unity. That God is one. He says that in Deuteronomy 6.4, probably the most famous passage verse of scripture in all the Old Testament for the Hebrew culture, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The Lord is one. He is Father, He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit. He is one. He is one. And He speaks of Himself in that way because the Trinity is a perfect union of divine love, of unbroken unity. And that's what He calls us to be together and with Him. In Genesis 11, 1 through 7, one of my favorite uh, stories that I never really understood the significance of until uh, I was in ministry and serving in ministry, this is a story of the Tower of Babel. And if you're familiar with that story at all, you know that, that they all decide to build this tower to make a name for themselves to reach up to the heavens so that everyone will see them and think they're amazing. And God scrambles the languages and confuses the languages because he recognizes how powerful unity is. And he says in that story, if this people, as one people speaking the same language, set their minds to do this, there is nothing they can't do. That should tell us a lot about the power that we have when we are all together on the same page, doing the same thing, speaking the same language about the same things. The problem is they were one with each other, but they weren't one with God. They were completely off the page that God was on. God had told them, go forth and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And they decided to collect each other and say, we're going to build this tower. We're going to reach up to the heavens. We're going to be like God, the same thing that tripped Eve and Adam up in the garden. And we're going to make a name for ourselves rather than making a name for God. So they just got off track a little bit, but it shows us how powerful unity is. Then in John 17, Jesus prayed that we would be one. This is one of the last things that Jesus prayed. He prayed that we would be one. As he and the Father are one. Now, how much are Jesus and the Father one? They're completely one. And he wants us to be in that unbroken fellowship and that perfect unity with him as well. Then we see in the early church that the early church was one in passion and in purpose. We see that they were able to do things that had never been done before in this church grew and spread and flourished in so many ways because they were one in passion and in purpose. And we've almost made it to Acts 2.42 in each of the messages that I preach, but we're finally there today. And I want to read this paragraph on Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47, because it's a description of the early church. And it's a description that shows us just how there was oneness in their passion in their purpose in everything that they did. We're told that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. 
They were one in passion and purpose. They, had, they, had, they were one with God and one with each other. And they accomplished things that had never been seen before, never been done before. And God added to their number because they were one, because he was adding to them. He wanted to see it grow. He wanted to see it flourish. And finally, last week, Pastor Zach launched our message on humility with uh, Philippians chapter 2. And verse 2 tells us this, and it's just a wonderful, wonderful little phrase that I just love. It says, make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Being one in spirit and purpose. The, the, the church that delights God's heart, the family that delights God's heart, is the family that is one in spirit and in purpose. And we see that again here in verses 3, 4, 5, and 6 of our passage in Ephesians 4, that we are called to oneness. So when we think about unity, the short definition of unity is oneness. Oneness with God and oneness with each other. So now let's talk about what it's not. Because sometimes we add some things to unity that really don't belong there. And they get us off course and they kind of derail the unity project. Okay, so as we think about unity, it's important to understand what unity is not. Unity is not uniformity. Unity is not uniformity, and it's not sameness. Unity is not mean that we all look and act the same. In fact, to prove it to you, if you finish reading Ephesians chapter 4, you'll see Paul go into the spiritual gifts and the different roles within the body of Christ. He's talking about the uniquenesses. He's talking about the differences and how they all work together, that when we're one in those different gifts and different spiritual gifts and abilities that we have, that's what enables us to be everything that God called us to be, that we need to celebrate the differences that we have because we need each other. And this idea of the body of Christ, a goofy-looking body, is one that's all feet. It's just feet, feet stacked on top of each other. It's not going to digest food. It's not going to think much. It's not going to accomplish a whole lot. All it can do is whatever a foot does. But when you take a foot and a hand and you take some internal organs and you take a brain and a nervous system and you take and you wrap it all with some skin and you take all the different parts of the body and you put them together, it can accomplish some pretty cool stuff. And the same is true with a body of believers, with a local church, that we are called to unity, to oneness, but not sameness. In fact, the, the, one of the hardest diseases or conditions for the medical field to treat right now are what they call autoimmune diseases. And an autoimmune disease is where the immune system, which is part of the body, identifies another part of the body and thinks that it's foreign, thinks that it's a threat, thinks that it's not part of the body, and starts attacking it. And I've prayed with, with moms and dads whose kids had autoimmune disorders that were very rare and very difficult to treat, where the body was literally attacking healthy cells and the body was killing itself. And so what, if a, what a picture for an unhealthy church. What a picture for an unhealthy church where they say, well, if you're not just like me, if we're not all the same, then you must be foreign, you must be bad, you must be wrong, we've got to attack you and get you out of here. And that's essentially what an unhealthy body does when it has an autoimmune disease. I think there are some churches that have autoimmune diseases. And we need to focus on being a healthy church, being a united church. Not saying we all have to be the same. but saying we all have to be one in spirit and in purpose. Because I'll tell you something that's interesting about this as we think about this. Sameness is a lot easier than oneness. There's a reason that we reach for sameness. Because I can find the people that are just like me, that think just like me, that act like just, just like me, that maybe look just like me, and live in the same part of town as me, and we can go be the same together and not be a healthy body of Christ. Oneness 
means that we celebrate the differences and we realize we don't all have to look the same. We don't have to be good at the same things. We don't all have to have the same, you know, socioeconomic background or family background or, or anything else that we can be one that God might send people to us who are different than us because we need them and they need us. And we can be a healthier body of Christ together. Together. So now let's finish up with what it must include. Unity is oneness, it's not sameness, but there's something that unity must include for it to accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. And unity must include alignment. Alignment. Unity must include alignment. If we had the huge boulder down here, on, uh, right in this area right here, six feet tall, six feet wide, uh, big round boulder, and we put the, the ten strongest guys in the, in the congregation, we lined them up all the way around it, and we said, all right, now push as hard as you can. And all these strong guys are pushing as hard as they can, but there's one opposite this one, and there's one opposite this one, and there's one opposite this one. Is that boulder going to go anywhere? No. It might as well be a beach ball. It's not going anywhere. Now, are they unified? Absolutely. They're all doing the same thing at the same time for the same reason. But until they get aligned with each other and aligned with God, that boulder's not going anywhere. And if it does, it's going to be because one person was stronger than the others and pushed the rock over on them and squashed them. And we don't want that either. So the, what, what alignment brings to unity is it brings progress. When we get all on the same side of that rock, whatever the rock may be, that we've decided that is going to be our thing, that we're going to move the boulder up the hill, when we get on the same side of it, that's when we bring progress to our united passion and purpose. So our bottom line to kind of try to weave all of this together, what unity is, what it isn't, and what it must include, is the bottom line is we're not called to sameness. We're called to oneness, moving in the same direction. We're not called to sameness. We're called to oneness, moving in the same direction with God and with each other. That's why God stopped the project at the Tower of Babel, because they had, they had unity together, and they even had some alignment, and they were moving some things, but they had left him out of the picture. But when we become one with each other and we become one with God, whether we're talking about our individual families, our immediate families, extended families, or our family of families here at Linwood, when we get on the same page, going in the same direction for the same reason, at the same time with God and with each other, there's very little that we can't accomplish. There's very little that we cannot accomplish because we're not called to sameness. We're called to oneness, moving in the same direction. Now, I want to finish just by pointing out a few unity busters and unity builders. A few unity busters, things that seem to blow up unity, whether it's in your individual family or in our family of families, and then some builders, some unity builders in our family of families. The first is preferences. Preferences destroy unity. When our preferences become the focus, it destroys unity. But when we surrender our preferences... And we say, well, it might not be my favorite song, or it might not be my favorite thing to do as a family on a Friday night, or it might not be my favorite this or that. For crying out loud, I've got preferences on how we load the dishwasher, okay? I'm one of those guys that goes in and rearranges the dishes, the dirty dishes in the dishwasher. We have preferences. Now, I used to throw a fit while I was doing it, but I've realized, you know, that's more on the order of a preference. And I can surrender my preferences and stop throwing a fit just because they don't put the dishes in the way that I do. 
And we can do the same thing with our worship. We can do the same thing with the colors of this or that or the programs that we offer. If it's a preference, we can set aside our preferences. And just because it's a stronger preference doesn't mean you're right. It just means you have a stronger preference. This was my first sermon here. The first time I stood on this stage, I preached a message about setting aside our preferences and surrendering, surrendering to God and what he wanted to do in us and through us. Another one is pride. Pride is a unity buster. And these kind of all, you'll see how they're sort of interrelated. Pride is a unity buster. Whenever pride raises his ugly head, it's going to probably break up the unity. But when we can choose humility like we did last week and like we learned about humility in our journals this week, uh, when we can choose to be a humble person in a humble family, in a humble family of families, that builds unity. When we put others first, that builds unity up. And the final one that I'll lift, I could have done this forever, but we got to get you to lunch, I'm sure, but uh, is rights and responsibilities. When we focus on our rights, that's a unity buster. That tears unity down. And my natural inclination is to focus on my rights and your responsibilities. Anybody else? I'm going to focus on my rights today and your responsibilities, and we'll see how much unity we have. No, but if I focus on my rights and your responsibilities, now we're building. I'm sorry, I said that wrong. Way to derail the train, Pastor Mark. If I focus on my responsibilities and your rights, and I'm more concerned in protecting your rights than my own, and I'm more concerned in discharging my responsibilities than your own, and I say, I'm going to make you the focus instead of me in securing my preferences. That builds unity. That builds unity as we become one and put each other first. It's kind of like that old Kennedy quote when Kennedy stood up and said, Ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. We could say the same thing about our family. Ask not what your family can do for you, but what you can do for your family. Ask not what your church can do for you, but what you can do for your church. And it changes the orientation, it changes the focus, and it builds unity instead of tearing it down because we're not called to sameness. We're called to oneness moving in the same direction. Let's keep that thought in mind. One thing I'll I'll mention, I mentioned this last week real briefly. We'll keep talking about it um, as we move forward. But it's this idea of membership, that you're going to have an opportunity at the end of the Family of Families series to to say, I want to take the next step. I want to take the next step, learn more about Linwood and learn more about the Wesleyan Church and learn more about how I can be a part of that and how I can contribute and how I can say, yes, I want to be a member of that. I want to commit certain things to be a part of that because I agree with where we're going and I want to be one with other brothers and sisters who are moving in the same direction. So if that's you, you can indicate that on your connection card at the bottom of your your, uh, bulletin and you can just say next steps class. There'll be a next steps class starting in mid-July. It'll go for several weeks. We'll have a membership um, enrollment opportunity and then this fall we'll celebrate with some new members who become a part of Linwood and take that step forward. Now as we respond... I always want you to respond. And I'm so excited about these new altar altar benchers. They're not new in the sense that we've never had them before. They're new in the sense that they have the same fabric as the seats now. So thanks to a couple of dedicated people who worked together. Judy Jansma was in on that. Kurt and Diane Ingett. John Skibout made several of the ends. And they worked together to to put these altar benches together for us. And I'm just so excited about that because it's one more opportunity that you have to respond in faith to what you've heard today. And I'll just say it again. I know there's a lot of the Dutch Reformed tradition here, so we're not the first to get up and walk forward while everybody's looking. 
But I hope that you won't let that hold you back. Because there is nothing wrong with somebody who gets up and walks to the front of a church at the end of a service. There's something really right with somebody who gets up and walks to the front of the church. And so I'm going to just throw it out here. If you want to come to this side, we'll assume that you'd like to pray alone. And we'll let you pray alone. If you would really like somebody to just come and put a hand on your shoulder and pray with you, you can come to this side. I'll come pray with you. One of our elders will come and pray with you. If you want them to to interact with you a little bit and pray something specifically, just put your hand on their hand as they put their hand on your shoulder and they'll lean down and ask how they can pray and somebody will pray for you today. You don't have to leave this place feeling alone anymore. And so this is just an opportunity for you and you can make an altar where you're seated. You can respond in faith however God leads you, but this is an opportunity you have. And I also wanted to mention this because I know the ground is a long ways down for some of us. Um, If you would be more comfortable coming forward and sitting on this than kneeling, you can do this. You can do this and somebody will come put a hand on your shoulder and pray for you. However you want to respond to God today, I hope that you will. That you'll be one with him and one with your brothers and sisters as you walk out of here. Would you pray with me this morning? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have called us to be one. One with you and one with each other. And Lord, it was so important to you that we could be one with you, that you sent your own son to come and to live a perfect sinless life to die a horrendous death on a cross that we could accept his love, his grace, his forgiveness that we could step out of our sin and our darkness and our eternity separated from you we could step into the light of life we could step into a loving relationship with you we could step into your grace and your mercy and be one with you and be one with each other with the body of Christ So we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit will move in hearts, will move in minds, will move in individuals and families, and will move in our church and have free reign. That we will respond in faith to you today, and that we will leave this place different than we came into it. Moving together as one people in step with you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.